Well, we come back to Romans uh, 13 this morning in a topic which we said last week must have been a common and essential teaching in the early church because it's brought up so many times throughout the New Testament. Not only do you find it in references to Christ's teaching, but Paul teaches it here in Romans, in 1 Timothy, in Titus, and even remind, it tells Timothy, uh, Titus to remind the believers of Crete that he had already said these things to them before. It was a common occurrence, an essential teaching among the early apostles, and even Peter gives his attention to it in his letters. It's the issue of submission to government, or we have titled our little two-part series here, Just God and Government. This was taught in clear tones throughout the New Testament, but no doubt had its basis in the Lord Himself. And what the apostles do when they come to their letters is just really elaborate on those principles that were given so clearly by Christ. We mentioned last week how when Peter, excuse me, when Jesus was before Pilate, he told Pilate very clearly that he would have no authority. That is, Pilate would have no authority unless God had given it to him. And any authority he has comes from God. We might even have a more insightful and weighty discussion in Matthew 22. In verse 15 of that chapter, Matthew tells us that there was an intentional plot by the Pharisees who resented the emperor, resented the government of their day, and yet they sent their disciples along with the Herodians, who were a group of pro-imperial Jews. In other words, they were disingenuous in their attempts to catch Jesus. And they came along and they attempted to flatter Jesus, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, in verse 18, Matthew writes, Jesus, aware of their malice, said to them, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me a coin, a coin for the tax. And he brought a, they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, obviously, apart from the clear statement of Jesus that we are to pay our taxes when our taxes are due, apart from that essential uh, point, Jesus is teaching something more profound, we might say, more fundamental, which is this, we're not to confuse Caesar's kingdom and Caesar's things with God's things. We're not to always assume that what are Caesar's things are the same things of the kingdom of God, whether it's taxes, whether it is the money of the kingdom, the laws, the rules, all that stuff that belongs to the kingdoms of this world, we shouldn't necessarily assume that they are one and the same with the kingdom of God. 
We shouldn't be consumed, therefore, with trying to take control of all those things to fight for them one way or another. We shouldn't begin to think that when the kingdoms and governments of this world would make their laws or take their taxes or demand their citizens do certain things, that they are doing anything that necessarily thwarts the kingdom of God. Sure, sometimes uh, taxes are unpopular and unpleasant and add additional burdens to our lives. Some of the laws are restrictive. You might even say irritating at times. Sometimes even their laws and their taxes are used for ungodly goals and purposes. Jesus isn't disputing any of that. But our role, he's saying, is not to try to dictate what they do with their kingdom and their things. Our goal... And our role is not to try to tell them that they can or can't have our taxes or how they are to spend them, not that you can't vote in a democratic process, but once that process plays itself, a, a, plays itself out, a body of governing leaders are in place, then we recognize their domain to write and to impose whatever laws and taxes they so desire. Now, none of that really undermines the essential work we have within the kingdom of God. Serving Caesar's kingdom doesn't preclude you from serving God's kingdom. And serving God's kingdom doesn't necessarily have any impact on whether or not you change, I should say, Caesar's kingdom. Now, what Jesus was teaching in such a powerful and concise way is exactly the point that Paul's expanding for us in Romans 13 As we mentioned last week, he's writing to a church in Rome who was under Caesar's kingdom. It wasn't the same Caesar as Jesus. In fact, it was a different Caesar, Caesar Nero, who, as we outlined last week, was an oppressive, a brutal ruler, one of the more brutal and perverse and dishonorable men who ever reigned over Rome, who ever ruled in the world. In fact, some of those who were reading Paul's letters were Jews who only six or seven years earlier had been forced out of Rome by a previous emperor, the emperor Claudius. They'd been forced out of Rome. They'd had all their property seized. They had been dealt with in unjust and unfair ways. They were, they were recipients of, of what we might call racial prejudice because they were singled out being Jews and expelled from Rome, yet none of that, Paul himself being a Jew, none of that causes Paul to adjust his doctrine or his counsel. He writes to them here, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear then of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore... One must be in subjection, not only to God's wrath, not not only to avoid God's wrath, wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 
So we mentioned last week, very practical discussion about our relationship to the state. Sandwiched in between two discussions about loving neighbors. That's what Paul gets at at the end of Romans chapter 12, where he had been talking about sincere love and particularly love for one's enemies. And then down in verse 8, where Paul tells us that we are to owe no man anything but to love. You're to pay your taxes, he's saying, and you're not to have any outstanding obligations, but just simply to love someone. And so all of this discussion about submission to government is really a discussion about how practically this love ought to look in relationship to your day-to-day lives and your relationship to the civil government. Because all of this, Paul understood, was critical as an element of our witness for the church. We're not called to be rioters. We're not called to be protesters. We're not called to wrangle with governing authorities. In fact, we are called to honor them, even to love them, and more importantly, to proclaim the gospel and its excellencies to them. And so we began last week looking at what Paul's saying here in some detail because he spells out what happens or what are the consequences, you might say, if we reject this essential doctrine. And we we started to enumerate six consequences of rebellion against governing authorities that if you don't understand uh, these consequences may bring grave consequences into your life. Six consequences of rebelling against governing authorities. The first one that we saw last week, is if you deny uh, governing or if you rebel against governing authorities, you deny God's power in establishing them. Or another way to say that is you just demonstrate to a watching world that you have a very low view of your God. That you don't appreciate the sovereignty of God so much so that you would actually think that He's in control of your circumstances And certainly in control of the government. You know, the scripture says that God holds the heart of a king in his hand and he directs it like channels of water. And so our response to the governing authorities, our response to our politicians and our policemen and everyone around us challenges whether or not we believe at the very core that basic idea of God's sovereignty. The fact that these governing authorities are in place because he has ordained that they be in place. Meaning that whether you're in a democracy or a dictatorship, every one of the authorities that are there, whether they are righteous or unrighteous, every one of them who are there are there by God's sovereign decree. Or you might say, well... Yeah, but we're different. You know, we, we're a constitutional democracy. So, so our responsibility is just to submit to the Constitution. I'm not going to submit to all those people who I think are disrespecting the Constitution. Well, the problem you have is that Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say that you have to submit to the governing documents or even the governing principles. He says you need to submit to the governing authorities. In fact, when Peter gets around to this, he's very specific. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him. So when he begins to talk about these governing authorities, he's saying it's not just the institution, it is the individuals that are in and a part of that institution. You have a responsibility. 
recognize every one of them as established by God's ordinance. You may not like the decisions they make. You may not agree with all their policies, but you are called to submit out of a recognition of God's sovereignty. Secondly, second consequence if you rebel against governing authorities is you defy God himself. I mean, this is just, this just follows naturally from the first point. Paul says in verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and he who resists will incur judgment. So he draws this direct correlation. If this is true, if God is the one who has placed all these governing authorities in place, then for you to resist them is for you to resist what God has determined, what God has set in place. It's it's to set yourself in opposition to God. Because the power behind all government is God Himself. And whoever resists that lines himself up against God, even if he believes with all of his heart, Even if he thinks with all sincerity that that he is aligning himself with God whenever he stands and resists the governments, the scripture is clear. You are not. If you are aligning yourself against the government, you are not aligning yourself with God. You're aligning yourself against him. Now you might be asking, "Well, well, what if the government asked me to do something that God's asked me not to do? If the government asks me to do what God forbids or the government forbids me to do what God has asked, am I still defying God if I resist the government? Well, the answer is no. Paul doesn't deal with that, of course, here. He's not, his purpose is not to explain all of the exceptions to the rule. His purpose is to lay out a vision of the way that you're to conduct yourself in society. So he just states the principle, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. He could have well added, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed unless the authorities command you to do what God resisted. He could have said that because that is certainly what you find throughout the pages of Scripture. If, if the government commands you to do what God forbids or if the government forbids you from doing what God has commanded, the Scripture is clear, you cannot obey that. In fact, if that happens, you've got to respond, I think it's safe to say, in two ways. First of all, you have to declare your ultimate allegiance to God, which is the pattern you see over and over again in Scripture. You see godly people who faced with the commandment of a ruler who was asking them to disobey God, and they showed their allegiance must be to God even above these human institutions. Classic statement, of course, is in Acts 5 from the lips of the apostles when the Sanhedrin, the ruling council over Israel, when they said to the apostles, We strictly charged you not to teach in the name of Jesus, and yet you've, you hear you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Of course, earlier, one chapter earlier, in Acts 4.18, the Sanhedrin had called them in and charged them not to speak and not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John had already told them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you be the judge. But we cannot but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. And so that was their approach They would be compliant, 
They would obey governing authorities out of a submission to God, but when those authorities asked them to abandon their submission to God, they understood they had a higher allegiance. Another way to say this is understanding that our obedience to the governing authorities is founded or or, or is built on the foundation of our obedience to God, it would undermine the very foundation if we suddenly became disobedient to God. If we, if we demonstrated a heart that would be willing to disobey Him in anything, we may as well disobey Him in following the governing authorities. So it's self-contradictory to think that you would disobey God whenever the governing authorities tell you to. So, whether it was Daniel disobeying Nebuchadnezzar's command to worship a false idol, whether it was the Hebrew midwives in Egypt disobeying Pharaoh's commands to slaughter Jewish boys, or whether it's some godly uh, European hiding Jews during World War II, it doesn't matter what the circumstance is. When people are commanded to do what God has forbidden, they are within their rights to stand up and to say, I'm going to obey God not men. So if you ever find yourself in that predicament, you have to first of all declare your allegiance to God and secondly, you have to trust God with the outcome. You have to trust Him that that you may very well suffer for this and He's in control even of that. In other words, your call is not to, to defy the government and then try to manipulate the circumstances with other sinful actions. There's no promise in those cases that your allegiance to God will be accepted by the government. There's no promise it will be admired. You might be beaten like the apostles were in Acts chapter 5. You might be mistreated. You might have your property and your rights taken away from you. You might be thrown in a lion's den as Daniel was. But we have to trust whether it is God's desire to miraculously spare us as He did with Daniel or to allow us to suffer, or as the apostles say in Acts 5, to have the privilege of suffering for the sake of Christ, that He's in control and bringing about His purposes through all of that. Now, in our modern and pluralistic context, that, that's challenging. It's difficult uh, because we feel the encroachment of so much ungodliness all around us. But even with all of that pluralism around us, it doesn't give us the rights, much less does it give us the mandate to use the Bible as an excuse to disobey clear commands from the government, which do not cause us to violate His other commands. It doesn't, for example, give us the right to use the Scripture to discriminate against other people. doesn't give us the right to use the Bible to try to isolate ourselves from the world around us. There are all kinds of ways in which in our, our modern society we are forced to interact with people from all kinds of worldviews and all kinds of lifestyles. In fact, we are intended to do this. We're in a world of lost sinners, a world full of perversion and impropriety and indecency and offensiveness. 
And the scripture is clear that we are not to participate in those kinds of activities. In fact, at the end of Romans 13, Paul makes it very clear we're to walk properly, not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. We're to, we're to not participate in those kinds of activities. But that's a lot different from saying that we're not to have contact with them. That we are not even to interact or we're not even to serve those people who live in those kinds of ways. In fact, Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he wrote wrote 1 Corinthians to correct a misunderstanding from one of his previous letters. Imagine that, someone misunderstanding what Paul said on something. We, We all know the feeling. Paul says, I I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. He goes on to say, I I was writing to you not to associate within the church. You're not to allow any so-called brother who, as he says, is sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or reviler, drunkard, swindler. You're not to allow them to associate within the church and claim the name of Christ. But apart from keeping the purity, we might say, of the church membership pristine, apart from that, God's intent would be that you were in the world but not of it. God's intent would be that you were having interaction with those kinds of people. And so God's call for us to remain pure as a church is by no means a call for us to try to isolate ourselves from the world, and nor is it a call for us to use uh, any passage of Scripture to defy mandates from our government even of equality in certain areas. Paul's just telling us that we have to obey the governing authorities. And the scripture tells us in other places that when the government asks us to directly participate in some sinful activity or when it asks us to directly not obey the Lord, we need to stand firm for Christ. So when the government passes laws calling us to treat other citizens with equal love and equal service and equal dignity, we shouldn't see any of those as a violation of a biblical command. In fact, we ought to be the first ones affirming those kinds of values within society. But then when the government asks you not to speak against their lifestyles, or even attempts to force you to participate sometimes in their perversion, then we have to draw the line and declare that we can't obey men above God. Well, I wish we had time to expand on that further, but I want you to, 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 to at least hear the principle and begin to ponder what that would look like in your life. We'll move on to a third consequence if you rebel against governing authorities. Paul says you deserve the punishment you receive. Not only are you denying what God established and defying God himself, but Paul's saying you deserve it if you receive punishment or ill consequences 
because of some foolish stand you might take. Or as he says at the end of verse 2, those who resist will incur judgment. Why? Because in verse 3, for rulers are not a terror of good conduct but of bad. In other words, if you disobey some governmental ordinance or law and get fined or get arrested, you ought to expect to pay the full measure of the law. I know, I know what it's like. You, you have the, the, the lights behind you pulled over at the side of the road and you're saying, oh, please, God, oh, just please, not this time. You shouldn't be surprised if he doesn't hear that prayer. You have broken the law. You ought to respectfully acknowledge that and you ought to be willing to pay whatever fine comes your way. No one is abusing you. No one is cheating you. No one is doing you wrong. If you violated some ordinance, if you violated some limit, if you violated some, some, some law and you taste the consequences of that, you need to accept the fact that you are living under the ordinance of God and paying exactly as you ought to be paid. It is justified. Now, thankfully, we have a lot of gracious authorities. And even when they show their grace, we ought to recognize that's exactly what we've received. So the implication is that when you face judgment, you're facing judgment enacted by God because He's the one that established the governments. He's the one under whose ordinance they are exercising their responsibility in establishing laws and punishing lawbreakers. They are, as he says down in verse 5, they are ministers. In verse 6, they are ministers. They are servants of God in what they're doing. In fact, probably one of the key reasons Paul's even bringing up this whole issue in Romans 13 is because what he said at the end of verse 12. He says to us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves... But leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So this whole idea of wrath and vengeance has already been introduced in the context, and the context is clear that God exacts His vengeance, and He does it through governmental authorities. This is, we might say, this is one of the ways we are to leave room for the wrath of God. To recognize that the wheels of justice may grind slowly, but they do move along. Classic story of this, of course, is a man named Mordecai, who we're told lived an honorable life under the kingdom of Babylon. He even showed loyalty to his king Ahasuerus when he uncovered a plot of two eunuchs attempting to assassinate the king. And then a as he conducted his life, an edict had gone out that everyone should bow down and give worship to the ministers in the government of Ahasuerus. And there was a certain minister named Haman. Mordecai was one of the men who did business along the pathway that Haman followed every day. And When Haman would go by in his chariot or on his horse, Mordecai would not bow down to him and would not offer him worship as the edict had commanded. Day after day, Haman would pass by and infuriated him that Mordecai would not bow down to him until finally he hatched a plot not only to exact revenge against Mordecai but against every Jew. He he hatched a plot to have every Jew in the kingdom killed. 
Mordecai heard about the plot, and he was understandably grieved that his personal conduct would now threaten the lives of so many of his brothers and sisters. In fact, he went out into the desert, out in the city, ripped his clothes off, dressed himself in sackcloth, and wept bitterly because of what he saw happening. But before all that could be carried out, the king was in his chamber hearing a report, among other things, of how Mordecai had actually saved his life by uncovering the plot of these two eunuchs. And in God's providence, at that very moment, Haman was entering into the court and the king commanded Haman to go out and find royal robes to dress Mordecai in them to mount him on a royal steed and to parade him through the city so that he could receive honor for everything he had done for the kingdom. Not only that, the king eventually heard even about the plot of Haman and gave orders that Haman was to be hanged in the place of Mordecai because of his evil plot to kill the Jews. Now, the interesting thing about that whole story, which you find in the book of Esther, is God's name is never once mentioned. It's the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned explicitly. And yet the reader clearly understands that God was at work through all of the governing actions of the king, punishing evildoers and bringing about justice in the end. Didn't mean that Mordecai didn't have to suffer. It didn't mean that there wasn't grief and doubt. It didn't mean that any of those things didn't bring with years of frustration. But when we leave room to the wrath of God, even in times of frustration, we trust that He has a broader plan to deal with injustices through His governing authorities. And in contrast, those who want to take justice into their own hands and try to upset the cause of the government, even those who are well-meaning. The Scripture says you deserve the punishment that comes your way. In fact, no, no matter what the nobility of their cause, it's never an excuse for disobedience and rebellion. Proverbs 24 says, My son, fear the Lord and the King, and do not join with those who do otherwise. For disaster will arise suddenly from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. Or to put it in the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, whenever he was surrounded by Pilate's soldiers, and Peter draws a sword and attempts to attack, he tells him to calm down, because those who live by the sword will die by the sword. That is not the pathway of our kingdom. It's not the message of our kingdom. It's not the work of our kingdom. Our kingdom is not to assault the kingdoms of the world and try to take control of their laws and their processes and their authorities. That is not our work at all. Our work is the preaching of the gospel, which brings us really to the, the fourth consequence of rebellion against governing authorities. When you rebel, not only do you deny God's power, not only do you defy God himself, not only do you deserve the punishment you receive, but But fourthly, he says in verse 3, you discredit the preaching of the gospel. You discredit the preaching of the gospel. Paul says it this way in verse 3, for rulers are not authority, uh, not not a terror to those, excuse me, rulers are not a terror to those, uh, to good conduct, but to bad. 
Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. The key word there being approval. You will be commended. You will be recognized because of your conduct, much like Mordecai and his faithfulness to the king, much like Daniel in the midst of a hostile culture. He found himself at times at odds even with the king, but eventually his faithful life was proven out. Again, this is really an explanation of Paul's final point in Romans chapter 12 when he says at the very end of that chapter, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yeah, you live in an evil place. You live in the midst of a perverse culture. And the way that you overcome that culture is not by assaulting that culture, but by overcoming it with good. Or this is the way Peter conveys it to us. 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject... For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or to, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who are evil, to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. God's will, <coughs> God's role for you is to do good, to find approval, to find those who see your conduct, and although they want to speak evil of you because they hate your God, they don't have a voice in light of the way you behave. Peter recognizes there will be critics. He knows there are those who are opposed to God and His righteousness. We're not to rouse them up, engage them in political debate or with petty protest. We are to shame them, silence them, by the power of the conduct of our lives. Or Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That's our goal. Not to be rabble-rousers. Our goal in the midst of even a perverse society, our goal is to be peaceful, to be quiet. And why is that? Because Paul says in the next verse, because God desires all people to be saved. You see, the very perverse society that you might be protesting against is the very society that needs to hear the gospel. The very authorities who are treating you with injustice are the very authorities who most need to hear the gospel. The ones who are burdening you, taxing you, whatever it might be, are not your enemies or shouldn't be your enemies in political debate. They are your audience to whom you're to be preaching. As Paul told Titus, Titus chapter 2, we're to live self-controlled lives, upright, godly in this present age, 
to adorn the gospel of God by being submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We're to be gentle and courteous, peaceful and uncontentious. And we're not to let ourselves be drawn in to all the political, partisan rhetoric. Because to do that would be to undermine our mission, to undermine our preaching, and to prostitute our calling. There's a fifth consequence if you rebel against governing authorities. Not only do you deny God's power, defy God Himself, deserve the punishment you get, discredit the preaching of the gospel, but fifthly, you disregard God's plan for your protection. This is just basic. If you fail to recognize that your government, for all of its weaknesses, is providing a tremendous service in your life, then you are ignoring one of the key, well, you might say the key underlying principles of God's creation. God has established from the very beginning governments to prevent chaos and to preclude the destruction of anarchy. Romans 13.4 The governing authority, the politician, the policeman, it doesn't matter. He is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For He doesn't bear the sword in vain. <coughs> he is God's servant. Oh, excuse me. He is the servant of God, an avenger of the one uh, avenger who carries out God's wrath on the one who's a wrongdoer. He doesn't bear the sword. He doesn't carry the pistol. He is armed and he is dangerous for a reason. He is armed and he is to strike fear for a reason. Because if he wasn't, he wouldn't be able to do what God has called him to do, which is to bring punishment against the wrongdoers. In fact, God has established, He has given into the control of government this kind of punishment not into our hands. This is exactly why murder is wrong, but capital punishment is right. This is exactly why you and I can't take justice into our own hands, but we can trust the government to enact just, uh, uh, justice. And for us to, uh, to violate either one of those, for us to imagine that the, the force and the power is better left to us, or to imagine that the force and the power ought to be taken away from the government, is to upset God's very plan for civilization. This is God's servant carrying out exactly what they're intended to do. Now you might say, well, if he's a servant of God, then I wouldn't be opposed to him. But it's those times when he's not serving God. They irritate me. Well, you misunderstand the point. Paul is not saying that any of these men are always perfect in obeying God's righteousness. But even in their imperfection, they're providing a vital function and service that if it was not there, you would materially suffer 
God didn't create the world with governments. He created the world. He designed Adam and Eve so that placed them in the garden under his direct guidance. But when sin entered the world, corruption entered the world, and God had to put in place some means of curbing all of the human corrupt desires of men and women. Because he understood that without all these governments, there would be wide-ranging, far-reaching abuse of one another. And there would be virtually nothing to prevent the exploitation, the attacks of men against one another. And yet in a fallen world, even these governmental institutions are not going to be perfect. They're still made up of fallen individuals. You might dream of a system that doesn't have that. You might grow tired of the corruption that you see in your current government. You might want to replace it with another, thinking that you can eliminate all of these abuses. But the history even of our own country should teach you enough that that's not the case. You might fight to overthrow what you consider to be one abusive authority, to put into place another abusive authority. And guess what's going to happen? Corruption. Abuse. Injustice. So the answer is not to sit around dreaming that in this fallen world you will ever have a perfect government. Instead, what God wants you to do is be grateful for the blessings of the government that He does bring. We are to understand that they are servants for our good if you're not doing wrong. Again, Paul's not dealing with all the exceptions here. He, he's not saying, look, you know, that, that, that you will never suffer unjustly. He's not saying that you'll never be punished for doing good. In fact, he himself had faced prison wrongfully. He had been punished simply trying to obey God. But none of those things caused him to be cynical about governing authorities. None of it caused him to ignore the great benefits that they brought. None of them caused them to abandon the core teaching of Christ Himself regarding government. And by the way, none of this means that you can't speak truth to governing authorities that are acting corruptly. John the Baptist, who Jesus says was the greatest man born among women, was thrown into prison and eventually beheaded because he called out Herod for breaking up his brother's marriage and marrying, committing adultery, committing incest in marrying his niece. Or even Paul, Acts chapter 16, when Paul was illegally abused and beaten by the city officials in Philippi, he tried, uh, they, they tried to have the issue swept under the carpet when they realized the mistakes they had made. They tried to send Paul away quietly. We read in verse 37 of Acts 16, Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, Men who are Roman citizens, and they've thrown us into prison, and do they now want us to throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these to the magistrate, these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and the others were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out of the city and asked them to leave. So Paul's not suggesting that you have to silence your voice against unrighteousness. 
He was within his rights to point out the injustice of these city officials and what they had done. He knew, however, he understood that it would have been wrong for him to take it any further. It would have been wrong for him to go out and begin a riot to try to attack these men or their role within government. Well, very quickly, I just want to give you this last one. I know our time is short. One final consequence of rebellion against governing authorities in verse 5 is you damage your conscience. You damage your conscience. Paul says in verse 5, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Paul issues raises this issue of the conscience here, which basically is our understanding of right and wrong. The conscience is, we might say, our consciousness of what we believe is right and wrong. Our understanding of what is right and wrong. Now, our understanding can be flawed. We can have a flawed conscience. It's not an infallible guide by any means. But he's simply speaking to our moral awareness and to the extent that our conscience is informed by Scripture, it becomes a more reliable guide. But, but Paul is telling us here very clearly what is God's will. God's will is that you submit to the government. And he's warning us then not to be drawn into all the political wrangling, not to be caught up in all the emotion of some movement and to suppress the inner impulse that would tell us that this is not right. You've been trained sometimes by just being brought up in society to obey certain laws, to obey certain rules that trains your conscience and to violate those rules, just like violating God's rules in God's law, you must suppress your conscience. And Paul says, I I don't want you to do that. I want you to be able to live an upright life, to conduct yourself in a way that would commend you to everyone around, and I want you to be able to proclaim the gospel with a clear conscience. Now you might say, well, my conscience isn't bothered by getting involved with all these movements. It isn't bothered when I'm out protesting or whatever. Well, you need to inform your conscience. It's become unreliable. Because it's not informed properly by what is right and wrong. Because God's will on this is clear. 1 Peter 2, be subject to, uh, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor or to the governor sent by him. For this is the will of God. And in the next chapter, chapter 3, Peter writes this. Now who is there to harm you? If you're zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. Even if you're in that exceptional clause. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense of anyone. Who asks you for the reason of the hope that's within you. And do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. 
So you see, this is the key to you being able to fulfill your mission. This is the key to you being able to preach. If your conscience is condemning you, if you're, if you're feeling that sense of shame because you know you have violated either one of God's laws or you have violated one of the government's laws and you know this is the will of God that you have violated, if your conscience is condemning you, you will have a shame which will silence your witness. But God's will is that you live in such a way within your government or with people around you that you can face the unbeliever no matter how they line up against you politically, socially, whatever it might be, knowing that they can have no legitimate accusation against you. And when do you do that, your witness will be bold. You will have sanctified Christ the Lord in your heart you would be set apart as holy unto him and you'll be silencing them by the conduct of your life you know it doesn't matter I think I said this last week it doesn't matter if someone favors 50% tax or 25% tax or no tax if they end up in hell Really, at one level, it doesn't matter whether they support homosexual rights, whether they support transgender rights, whether they support one candidate or another, if they end up in hell. doesn't matter what form of government they support, what party they support, doesn't matter what, uh, what kind of health care they want, all those things, they don't, they don't matter at the end of the day. If they're not able to stand before Christ and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. We cannot be so consumed with having them see our view of government one way or another and be less consumed with having them see Christ. That's Paul's point. Love your neighbor. Do good to those. Be kind to your enemies. Because to this you've been called. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are attentive to your word today. It is not a message that we would say is commonly proclaimed among even believers. And yet, let us be different. Let us set not only the record straight with the clear proclamation of your will. But let us demonstrate by our lives what a powerful testimony looks like of loving our neighbor. Help us then to owe no man anything but to love. Help us to live lives that will silence the critics and glorify our Savior no matter what the outcome. And Lord, we do trust you with that. We do make room for your wrath and your vengeance. You will right all wrongs. You will bring about justice and your glory. And in the meantime, Lord, we yield ourselves to you, whatever may come. Whether you deliver us or whether you ordain for us to suffer for Christ's sake. May we be prepared for it all. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.